we know the locations of the sealed portion of the book. <laughs> oh, is that not recording? Oh, okay, then you're not going to get your note. Oh, bummer. <laughs> I think we've all had uh, experiences in our life where we have brushed up against uh, something, the, the spirit, something grandeur, and our brains know and our souls know that we're brushing up against the infinite, and we're just so overwhelmed by that. And certainly I've had those experiences in the temple or certain meetings. Um, and, and yet we also are very conscious of, while we're brushing up against the infinite, that our mortal brains can only comprehend so much of what we're brushing up against. And then that is multiplied by the fact that now if I have to take what, I've ex- what I really feel in my soul and put it into words... Now I've got to, I'm limited by my language to be able to share it with other people. Then as I try and share it with other people, now it's going to come out of my ability to communicate and now it's less. And now I'm sharing it with somebody that on their side, they may or may not be ready to hear what I have to say. So we take the incredibly infinite thing that our souls feel and it gets winnowed down to that little bit that gets to the other side, the other person. That's why these kind of experiences um, uh, have to be so individually felt and experienced. And this, this seminal event in history that we're talking about today this week is, is one of those experiences. So I wanted to, so I thought about, well, how do we take something, because here's the other part that happens with the atonement. Because we talk about it a lot, it tends to be trivialized. It's become more common. Oh, it's the atonement. Well, obviously the atonement did it. Well, great. You know, we're talking about the atonement, and it has become so commonplace that we that it gets it doesn't get its due because we're not in a place that day to hear it. Um, so, part of trying to personalize this a little bit, I wanted to run this week and next week through the eyes of people. I think it's the only way to really have some sense about the effect that these events had to those that were the boots on the ground. These were the people that actually saw it. So I want to start with Peter. Wonderful Peter. Uh, And in his writing, unfortunately with Peter, I don't know how much he wrote. What little bit we wrote, what little bit we have, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, is among the most powerful, lyrical, beautiful writings that we have. Peter was an incredible author, an incredible writer. Uh, with incredible experiences, and we have so very little from him. Now, Second Peter. Moreover, I will endeavor that I may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. I'm worried about it, you guys understanding this after I die. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Eyewitnesses of His majesty. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as a light that shineth in a dark place until the dawn come. 
and the day star arise in your hearts. That's why I copied a picture of the the day star, the colored uh, pentagram from uh, the Nauvoo Temple is the day star, and then the morning star is the one with the longer point on it. That's the day star. It refers specifically to Second Peter. The last one's the day. Uh huh. Yeah, the colored one is the day star. But here's Peter, and he's trying to write about experiences and put them together in a way that you'll remember them down through the centuries. <coughs> and what they must have known and felt. Peter is one of those. I'm really hoping he does a fireside in the millennium. I am so there. He's one of my all-time heroes. Uh, but what he saw, what he experienced, and it was held in his heart, uh, must have been incredible. And then the ability, like Joseph Smith, to have felt all these things and then somehow trying to communicate to people that aren't ready to hear it must have been incredibly frustrating. Okay? Yeah. On the uh, morning star... Yeah, the, the, the longer star there is, think of it like a, uh, the, the sun coming up in the morning and it's like the rays coming down to the earth. Okay, That's why he's also the morning star. He's the star of the morning. All right. Now, so let, let's start walking through these, these events if we can. We'll see kind of how far we get and what we're able to, to do. So, yeah. The stars, are they supposed to go both represent Christ? Yes. Yeah. Because he is the uh, morning star um, and he's also the day star that arises in our heart. And I, and I love that imagery of, by the way, our heart. And you picture the, the morning sun coming up. I remember being at, at uh, whenever I'm at sea and you get a chance to kind of look out and here's the, here's the water and then you watch the sun come up over the horizon. And it just and there's nothing to stop, but it just spreads out over the sea along the horizon. It's just always so impressive uh, to me. You picture the Savior being like that. He's going to plant a seed in our heart, and it slowly awakens in us. Um, is to, the imagery is incredible. Okay, so Matthew 26. So now we're finishing the supper. And now it's time and they, and they leave the upper room. Uh, they're preparing to leave the upper room. But before they do, it says that they sung a hymn. Would it make sense that they would have kind of a closing song? I don't know if they had a closing prayer, but they at least had this closing song. And you would think, of all the songs they could choose, what would be, their, what would be the song that they would sing to close with? Well, we don't know for sure. Uh, you know, if it were me, it would probably be like the Spirit of God, like a fire is burning or uh, uh, something like that. 
But traditionally, according to Bruce R. McConkie and a few others, there was a belief that oft-times the Passover celebration uh, at that time concluded with a hymn, and it was generally uh, Psalms uh, 115 to 118. So, and in this case, it would make perfect sense that it would be that. So I want to hop over for just a second why I think Psalms 118 makes sense. Because we're setting the table that literally they're going to go from the upper room and make their way across the, the dark, darkened old city and start getting ready to go down the, the Valley of Kidron. Um, so what are they going to sing before they do that? Look at Psalms 118. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and sent me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do for me? And then think about uh, as he is aware of what's about to occur, both in terms of the atonement and then his pending death. Uh, Verse 10. All nations compassed about me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Then listen to this, this verbiage. They compassed me about like bees. Does that give you an image? Of kind of, th- think about what's going to happen when, he is, when he's being scourged or when he is having to carry his cross uh, uh, on the way to uh, Golgotha. And you get that, that sense of buzzing and all of the, the people attacking him. They compass me about like bees. Uh, they are quenched as a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. And then verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The Lord is my light. When we're singing the Lord is my light, that's what we're... This is referring to Psalms 118. 16. The right, hand, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. So let me stop for a second. Who's the right hand of the Lord? Jesus is. Yeah. He's referring to Elohim. The right hand of the Lord. Myself. I am Him. This is Him. I am the, the, I'm about to be exalted... The right hand the Savior does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over to death. With this, you just think about for the Savior. I don't know how much we're going to discover in a sec. The disciples were still struggling to try and understand this. But think about what this meant to the Savior as he prepared himself to make this walk. Okay? Yeah. This kind of makes, reminds me when Joseph Smith was in uh, uh, Carthage, Carthage. Carthage and they were singing, had uh, John Taylor singing, Yes. Carrying Man of Grief, kind of for comfort. Uh, that makes sense. Yes, he said, this would remind you a little bit in, in Carthage and as Joseph is feeling weighed down and he wants John Taylor to sing. What does he want him to sing? A poor wayfaring man of grief. Because he would so relate 
to that. Yeah, this is a, a, a perfect example of that. And then there is this point that is, uh, verse 22, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. I am the cornerstone. I am the stone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then think of the irony to this about what's about to happen and what's going to happen in the next day. He's about the, the, uh, he will go into Gethsemane this night and by middle of the night then will come the lights and the torches of Judas and those coming from the Sanhedrin. And yet to the Savior, he's saying, given what is about to occur, and it's probably already occurring, it's beginning to settle on him uh, the waves of, of uh, this, this most important ordinance. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad. How can you be glad in this kind of pain and tribulation? How do you do that? How would you do that? You've got to understand where the whole thing is going. And sometimes we get caught up in the pain of here and we can't see the bigger picture. We don't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the love he has for each of us individually probably helped carry him through. Would this have made a difference when this is settling on him to look around the room and go, Oh, Andrew. Thomas, I really love you. you know, and, and Peter and John the Beloved, he had, he had real-time people to say, let me, rem- let, let me remember why it is I'm doing this. Ah, well, it's, it's because of you guys. And he's looking into their eyes and saying, I'm doing this for you. Yeah, I think that would be, a, that would be extremely helpful. Yeah, and, and the love and feeling the love of the Father, and that's why and we'll talk about this a little bit more next time. What happens when the when the love of the Father is so great that it has to and it has to be withdrawn? It has to, he's gonna have to go to a far part of his universe uh, rather than have to sit and watch this. So Alright. So I, I I just love that the fact that this whole thing is being set up by him and now he's about to go forward and and uh, Anyway, if you ever if you ever been to a Jewish uh, synagogue, the, the one of the centerpieces of a Jewish service is the cantor, and the job of the cantor is to do what? Sing, sing. yeah, sing the psalm, sing the hymn, sing the, and it's going to be sung by this this person. Okay, all right. So that said. Now, let's now look then to 26, because as they get ready to go that make this descent, the Savior is going to share some things with them, and he's going to get a, an interesting response from them. 31. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be what? Offended. Okay, now, why would they be offended? That... This is their disciples. Well, it doesn't make sense unless you... I put the Greek translation in above the verse. Because the real word was not offended. The real word is... Stumbling block. This night, 
ye shall all have a stumbling block placed because of you, because of me. Um, and, and it's written in Zechariah, I smite the shepherd and the, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Now, why though? Is, let, let me ask you this. Is the Savior ever a stumbling block? Is He an impediment to us? Why would, why would that be true? Yeah. So part of it was the overwhelming. We don't understand exactly what you're doing. Okay, that would be one. Yeah. Well, a lot of times our assembly blocks, I think anyway, come because of fear. Of what? It may fear of, well, for for them it may be fear of their lives. You know, if if he's saying all of you will have a, be offended because of me this night, all of you maybe will become fearful because of me this night. You know, because, you know, what if they capture them too and take their lives? Okay. So there may have been some sense of physical danger as a possibility. And he was so powerful. There, he, they didn't think he was going to die. They didn't think anything would happen to him. That he could call down whatever power he wanted. And so when he did die, that's like it shakes their faith. What happened here? Right. Right. Why else, even for us, might the Savior be a stumbling block? I just had another question. What did you ask me? Yeah. If Jesus knew, I mean, Jesus knew what he was doing. Yeah. Um, right. But he was fulfilling what needed to be done. What needed to be done. Hang on to that thought. We're, we're going to go there in a second. Maybe next week. If we don't get there. <laughs> yeah, we do need to talk about Judas. Okay. How would the how would the Savior offend you though? How would the Savior be a stumbling block to you in your day this week? Yeah. I pray for something really hard and I feel like I'm exercising a lot of faith and then I don't get it. Yeah. And and it was a righteous desire, right? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't like unright. Okay. And so where does he become a stumbling block for you then? He didn't, right. I asked, it was a good thing he didn't come through for me, so I stumbled a little bit in my faith that says, well, wait a minute, did he really love me then? Doesn't he really know what it is that I need? Of course I need this. Okay? Sometimes I feel like he's a stumbling block because I feel so incapable of reaching perfection and being perfect. Yeah, I just can never get there. Uh, to, uh, Sister Moon, uh, I, I've, laughed, I've laughed a couple of times about your comment uh, when we were talking about do we bring an alabaster box or a bag? And who's in our bag? And for some of us, it's Martha's in our bag. <laughs> you know, we're trying to do our thing. Is, is it possible that for some of us, the Savior is in, is in our bag? I can't be what He wants me to be. He's expecting too much. He set me up to have to do the impossible. I can't do it. Why would he ask those things of me? Can it also be seeing versus feeling that they had heard um, and seen all the things that Jesus did, and yet they're going to they're going to be seeing all these things now that are going to happen to him, and are they going to remember what he said? Are they going to remember how they felt when he said it? 
even though they're seeing yeah. him crucified, wait a second, he said, you know, that could be a stumbling block too. I can't. What if I don't remember all this stuff? What if I don't do it right? And he's asking me to take it and run with it. What if I can't do it? What if I can't remember what I was supposed to do? What if I mess this up? Think about in your particular callings that you have. When you start getting your sense of your calling and who you're responsible and the reaction it's going to have to those people... And, and the eternal consequence of, what if I don't do this right? Don't, what if I don't do it the way that the bishop wanted or the Lord wanted? I could mess them up. Moms, didn't you have that sense at one point when your kids were born? Oh, always. And you look in their face and you go, it's one thing if I mess me up. It's another thing if I mess this little human being up and I screw them up. Or you're, or you're down on yourself when you have been too harsh on them and you punished them and they're crying in their room and you go, oh, I scarred them. <laughs> you know, I can't do... The Lord wants me to be their parent and I'm messing this up. Helen, yeah. I think you kind of went somewhere that I wasn't on that road. Okay. Um, it's like, don't doubt your doubts. When you have had a testimony born to you, when you have had the Spirit touch you, even though you see things that don't make sense, don't doubt what you felt. That's where I meant that ah. he was a stumbling block. Okay. Or he could have been a stumbling block. I think block. so. Because I... of what now they were going to witness and see. Yeah, and they're just going to be overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I just think, so, so don't get caught up too much in the word offended. If we see this as a stumbling block, and we're going to watch this stumbling block in a number of different ways here kind, kind of play itself out. Okay? Now, the Savior's response to this, he says, 32, After I am risen again, I will go before you unto Galilee. Well, that's an odd phrase. Why wouldn't he come back to Jerusalem? Which he kind of does. We, we don't know, but can I throw out a suggestion? After all of this is done, and again, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, and, and it's done and it's finished, what does, what does Peter say to the other apostles? I go a fishing. And where did he go a fishing? Galilee. Galilee. <laughs> and there's some suggestion that says, if we're about to carry out our, our life's work here, we need to go fishing to provide for our families before we take off. But one of them might also have been, where did the Lord say He was going to meet us? Galilee. I go fishing in Galilee to wait for my Master. See, we keep trying to... These guys were really human. But, and, and let's talk about this with Peter. With Peter, James, and John, every head of every dispensation has always had the vision when they are at a point when they're ready to take on a dispensation. And Joseph Smith had it. Uh, Nephi had it. Um, Enoch had it. Moses had it. Where they're going to see a vision of the future and everybody that's in it. And, and they're just overwhelmed by it. They get their endowments. They are now, they are ready to carry the weight of a dispensation. They have reached the point where they will never fall. 
Did Peter, James, and John have that moment? Where? Mount of Transfiguration. Never forget, these guys are dispensation heads now, and they are at a level that they have seen the eternities, they've seen and felt everybody, uh, what's coming, they know. I understand for the twelve, they struggled with this and that, but for Peter, James, and John, they're in a particular place. They have seen him transfigured on the mount, and they have taken on the responsibility of this dispensation. These are pretty powerful people, and they're not going to be willows in the wind. Yes. Bruce R. McConkie uh, taught that on the Mount of Transfiguration, not only had they received the vision, the keys, the responsibility, all of that, but he also said that it was in that setting that they also received their endowments. On a mount, uh, with, with the Savior there, and saw Him in full glory, and saw Him in full power, and heard the voice of the Father. And John the Baptist was there, and Elijah was there. This was section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants. They're getting the keys. And then we're going to ascribe to them some very human behavior, and, I, and, and, we, and we will forget who they are if we're thinking that. Okay? So here it comes. Peter answered and said, though, I, though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet I will never be offended. You will never be a stumbling block to me. Ever. Jesus said, before thee, I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Uh, now, as a, as a point of information, just so you know, we've talked about uh, the way that the, the Jews kept time, and it was really at this point based on the way that the Romans kept time. And so we talk about the, from a time standpoint, that dusk to about 3 p.m. is called the first watch. From 9 p.m. to midnight is the second watch. Midnight to 3 is called the third watch, or the crowing of the cock. It's the cock crow. From 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the fourth watch or the second cock crow. Okay? Because roosters have this disturbing habit sometimes at like 3 in the morning to crow once and then somebody throws something at them and then they stop, I think. (laughs) Okay, before the cock crow, before 3 a.m., You're going to deny me three times. Peter said, Though I should die with thee, yet I will not deny thee. I will not deny thee. Likewise also said all the apostles. Okay? Now, we're seeing this through... Remember, who is Peter? Who's Peter, James, and John? They are the... Yes, does that make sense to you? That suddenly... In fact... When was the moment that Peter was probably at his most vulnerable? It's about to come in a little while, isn't it? Isn't it when here comes, here comes the mob? And this is the moment when he could really kind of get hurt. They could capture him. Well, with, And what, is, what does Peter do? Does he deny? No, what does he do? He pulls out the sword. <laughs> 
This, this weak, denying person is wielding a sword and chopping people's ears off. Okay? Right. Coming out of the garden, that impediment is that sometimes we don't want to be on the wrong side of <coughs> public opinion. Unless there was another reason. listening uh, to a broadcast around Easter about Peter's denials and an evangelical preacher was talking about how weak-willed Peter was in in his denials and and President Kimball then went to BYU in a fabulous talk called Peter My Brother and and I I wish I had time to and by the way you get a really nice mp3 recording of this if you go to uh, BYU speeches and hear Peter, my brother. But this is just the, the gist of it. Much of the criticism of Simon Peter has been centered in his denial of his acquaintance with the Master. This has been labeled cowardice. Are we sure of his motive in that recorded denial? He had already given up his occupation and placed all worldly goods on the altar for the cause. If we admit that he was cowardly and denied the Lord through timidity, we can still find a great lesson. But has anyone more completely overcome mortal selfishness and weakness? Has anyone repented more sincerely? Peter has been accused of being harsh, indiscreet, impetuous, and fearful. If all of these were true, then we still ask, has any man ever more completely triumphed over his weaknesses? But... Is it possible that there might have been some other reason for Peter's triple denial? Could he have felt that circumstances justified expediency? When he bears a strong testimony in Caesarea Philippi, he had been told that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. What is the other reason that Peter may have denied the Savior? I think it might, well, one thing I've heard is that Christ was telling him, it's like a commandment. It was a commandment. To not to deny him. Okay, now, given what we know of Peter, does that, does that not make a little more sense? That Peter, who's going to wield the sword, Peter's going to wield the sword. In this case, the Lord is having to say to him, you will need to deny me three times. Because you're because you will need to carry on after I leave. Doesn't that make more sense? In that, if that's the case, then how is the Savior an impediment to Peter? How is he a stumbling block? He's going to have he's going to have to do something he really doesn't want to do. 
This is my master. I will stand for him any place, anywhere, anytime. You can kill me if you want, but he is the Christ. And the Savior says, you're going to have to deny me. Because this mob mentality is going to be there. And Peter, you may not live through the night. I can stand a, a flogging. You won't live through a flogging. You're going to have to deny me. I don't want to deny you. Yeah, and you're going to have to do it repeatedly. Because that's the only way. You're going to have to run the church when I'm gone. You're the one that holds the keys now. And you can't. It is not yet time for you to die. And you may die in this process. Is that, is that, is that at least a, a, a real possibility? Okay. Can we get the air on here? It's a little warm in here. Oh, it's comfortable. I know. I'm wandering, so I'm warmer. Yeah, I just turned on. Okay. Any comments on that? Does that make sense? I just think the idea of the Savior as a stumbling block is going to hit each of us in a different sort of way. And sometimes I think the hardest thing is when we're asked to do really hard things. Even if our heart wants to really kind of do something else, if we're following the commandments, we're going to do hard things. Yeah. It says that he wept bitterly. Why would he be weeping? He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. And, and he felt horrible of all the... I, I'm supposed to stand as a witness and bear witness of this man in all places, wherever I may be. And now at this moment... That's why I think it's funny. One of those denials for him is they're sitting around the fire and some lady asks him, weren't you with him? And he has to go, No. Well, that's not a very dangerous place as opposed to when they're standing there with swords and torches. I think that was a hard thing, and I think he wept bitterly because he had to do it. Is this kind of like Nephi having to kill Laban, doing something you I don't think want to is do this. Wrong, do but... this. No, I don't do this. Yeah, I know, but you're going to have to do it anyway. That is even a better example. Yeah. Amulek turning to Alma and going, they're killing my family. They're burning all of these up. Do something. And he says, the spirit constrains me. If, if it's not, if it was up to me, I would be torching these guys. But the spirit constrains me. But this is my family. Yeah, I know. You were preaching to them. Yeah, I know. And they're going to, and I know. I know. And we have to watch them die. Honey? So Christ told Peter to lie. Yes. He told him to deny. I don't know him. <laughs> Thank you for that insight. Really <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah, he has to say, really, really, I don't know him. Like reading the scriptures every day or saying our prayers. Yeah, that, that could very well be. It's those little tiny... Yeah. I have to go to a stake meeting tonight and I'm really tired. But I'm going to be obedient and show up where I'm supposed to be. <sighs> okay. All right. <clears throat> Now, 
So in this, so they're gonna they're gonna walk through this, and then they're, now they're gonna make the walk, and they're gonna they're gonna go down through the valley of Kindred, and it says, uh, then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and the question I guess would be why this place? Well, Mark is gonna say this is a place that he goes, uh, he was wont to go. This might have been a garden owned by uh, a rich benefactor. To be in that that site, this was pretty prime real estate, okay? Uh, And it might have been a place that he was able to go on a regular basis so that he could have quiet time, okay? Now, and and I don't want to belabor this because we've had endless lessons on this, but but why the name, what does Gethsemane mean? Olive press, press. yep. And so this was also a place probably where there were olive trees. Uh, There still are, they're massive now. Uh, and that we, we've talked about the image of the wine press uh, and the crushing of the stone that would crush the olives and, and have absolutely crush everything about that olive. It has to be completely crushed. And, and then the, the juice comes out at that point red like blood. Okay, So he's coming to this place where olives are crushed. Um, and Gethsemane. And he's going to say, uh, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. <laughs> now, watch it from the, the Joseph Smith translation. I want He's about to do something, and it's not random. There's something very specific that he's doing, I believe. Um, but it, first of all, you need to understand Joseph Smith translation. If you go to Mark 14, as I've got up there, it says... They came to a place which was called Gethsemane, which was a garden. And the disciples began to be sore amazed. Scriptures say that the Savior was sore amazed. Joseph has changed it that he was was hurting, he was weighed down, he was in pain, but not necessarily amazed. It was the disciples that were amazed. Uh, They began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And then listen closely. And to do what? Complain in their heart. And what? Wondering. If he's the Messiah. They've just come through the Last Supper. I think they're tired. I think they are tired. <laughs> they're not at their best. Yeah, you should sleep before you actually think this through. <laughs> That's good. Do you think of any white as they might be doubting? Why would they? Why would they even be going here? Why would they be doubting at all? Maybe they thought he should be heading in a different direction. They had this vision of maybe what he should be doing now, and they had this view of it, and he wasn't necessarily following their script. Okay, there's a possibility. Yeah. Sure. And they would have kind of been expecting it. Now's the moment. You said you were going away. Wonder where we're going. You know, Thomas, show show us the way. We're coming with you. This is going to be. This is going to be. I know you keep talking about death, but maybe that's symbolic. You don't want necessarily want that. Okay. What? Well, and didn't they kind of expect him to be a political figure? Some did. 
Now, is that this group? I, hard to know. But some of, and that was a, that was certainly a sentiment. Okay? Can, can I suggest one more reason? This is just Hinckley 101. Okay? Or verse 1. I've talked before that uh, one of the goriest, bloodiest, R-rated movies I've ever seen was The Passion of the Christ. And I don't know how many of you saw that. Okay, um, But there, in one aspect, I believe that um, they got it right. Because, as I've, as I've mentioned before in another class, the movie opens with the Savior in Gethsemane, and you watch Him in pain, and you watch Him praying and struggle, and then the, the camera pans out, and you see Satan standing right there, whispering away. Ah, they don't deserve this. They don't. They're not going to believe. You know, they're not that good. It's not worth it. Get up and walk away. <laughs> now, where in all the universe on this night would say would Satan and his minions be? Right there. This is the last chance to shut this down. And they would have come. Literally, uh, I believe a large part of the atonement was the buffeting of Satan. I think it was his temptations and his evilness and his power. Just with everything he had firing with all that he had at the Savior. Okay, And you just figure that it's like the, the Savior's in the center of the tornado. Kind of all of this coming. So, would it make sense to you that if you were anywhere near this, that you might have been feeling some of the waves of that evilness that were being inflicted on the Savior? Yeah. I think that it's, it's possible. I want to give some benefit of the doubt to these disciples who are being rained on with all of this evilness. Okay? I believe that's a real possibility. But... Nevertheless, what we do know for sure is that they were wondering if he was going to be the Messiah. Now, 37, he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and begins to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now, I want you to picture... Let me just ask you something. Um, in, our, in our experience, when we talk about... If we're going to look at the, the, at the atonement as some kind of ordinance that we don't completely understand... Where do sacred ordinances generally occur? In temples. Places that have been set apart as a place where these sacred moments, the moment when heaven and earth meet and sacred covenants are being made. Okay? Now, so in... For, for uh, Israel, first in the tabernacle and then the building of the Temple of Solomon, the temple was built into three places, right? The, the Holy of Holies would be the sacred place. Who gets to go into the Holy of Holies? The high priest. And then also if there was, if, if there was a prophet at that moment, they also would be. Do we have Holy of Holies today? Yes. Yeah. Salt Lake Temple, is there's a Holy of Holies. Uh, if any of you have ever been to a ceiling in the Manti Temple, maybe been in the ceiling temple. Ever go to? The, was it in the blue room of the Manti Temple? Yeah. 
The blue room in the Manti temple has a, has a uh, beautiful altar. And in, rather than being in the middle of the room, it's in an alcove. It's in a blue, alt, kind of a seashell-shaped thing. And the altar sits in that alcove of the blue room, the ceiling room of the Manti temple. Why? Because that was the Holy of Holies until the Salt Lake Temple was built. Yeah. The, the one time I went to the Salt Lake Temple for the endowment session, I was walking around, obviously looking totally amazed at everything. Right. And one of the older patrons there uh, saw me and, and said, hey, you want to see around? And so he took me back and all around and some offices and back ways. And he said, he walked up and like, this is the doorway to the Holy of Holies. And wow. It's shorter door. You have to actually left down to the end. Wow. It's just off the special room. Yeah. See, and we have an understanding that in the Holy of Holies, this is where the potential is there for man to talk to God. Now, does it happen? Nobody's ever going to say, but it is a place where the prophet can commune. Okay, that's how that works. Now, just outside of that, in the in the in the uh, Temple of uh, Solomon and also in the tabernacle is the holy place. This is where the temple, of in, the uh, altar of incense was. This is where the uh, um, anyway. This is where the priest could come, but only the high priest is going to walk into the holy of holies. Okay, that's the holy place. Now, in the porch is where kind of everybody else that is to a certain level can be. Does that make sense? Now. On Mount Sinai, for instance, Mount Sinai, you see this pattern laid out before they ever built the the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. And at, at the Mount Sinai, only Moses could go to the top. And Aaron, Nahab, and Abihu could be. They were like a little farther down. These were these were here, and then the seventy elders. And and why would they all be there? In this case, if you have man talking to God, the purpose of those three would be to be what? Witnesses. We were witnesses of His glory. We can stand as a witness in all time and all places. That we were there. We saw it. We can testify to the world as Peter is doing. Now, I didn't put it on here, but didn't they also do that at Mount Transfiguration? The Savior is going to be in a place where He's being glorified. Who's right next to Him in the holy place? Peter, James, and John. They can act as witnesses. Okay? That's, that's how this always sets up. Now, look at the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at what the Savior is, just, is doing. He's going to place Himself in the center of the garden where this most sacred moment can occur and covenants and promises are being fulfilled that were made in before this world was. Here is the Savior uh, performing that important work. Now, who is just a little bit distant? So there's the Holy of Holies. A little bit distant from that is Peter, James, and John who are acting as the Three witnesses. And they will, that's one of the reasons why it is that the Savior keeps coming back to them uh, and he keeps saying, Wake up! Watch! Why? So you can declare later what you saw. 
Now, I find it fascinating, and I, and I can't tell you why, that in, in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, these are the ones that wrote later, but so much of their stuff is kind of similar. John is the one that is different. That's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are always called the synoptic ones. John is the non-synoptic. It doesn't fit with the others. Okay? Of all of those four gospel writers, who was in the holy place watching the atonement just a few feet away? John. Of the four, guess who didn't record this moment? John. And we don't have Peter's account either. Now, that's fascinating to me. I don't know... So someone suggested once, well, it's because they fell asleep. You know, and he's a little embarrassed to write because, you know, he's been, no. So many prophets throughout time have not been able to write the magnitude of what they've seen, felt, and heard. Doesn't that make sense? She says, so many prophets haven't been able to write. Think about the Nephites when they're saying that he prayed, he knelt and prayed, and so great were his words that. We can't even write them. I think that's John. And some weren't allowed to write them either. We needed to have some witnesses and say, yes, there are people walking the earth. There are these three witnesses specifically that walk the earth that will tell you they saw God in His glory and they saw the atonement. And in a sense, don't we have that with the three witnesses? Are there people that walk the earth that one day will be able to say, we watched what... Jesus did with the Nephites. There are three witnesses. Yes, I am. And I also think that, I mean, we have a lot of what he wrote. And he wrote what he needed to know. Yes, he did. Right, so the question is, how did we get what we got? How did we, how did we get, because he's going to say in just a second, he, he, after he tells them to wake up, he go, goes back and it says, and he fell on his face. Well, that's pretty specific. He didn't like gently kneel. He is so overcome. He falls and he fell on his face. How do we know that? He must have told people. He must have told people, make sure you write this. Or that there was at least information coming from Peter, James, and John saying, it's too much to even try and describe the agony and the pain we felt. But can I just give you a little insight? He was so overwhelmed he fell on his face. Would that make sense that some of this was probably lost that they might have written? And I think that's that's really possible. Especially if it wasn't matching with what later, you know, in the first century, second century, that they really wanted a, a particular narrative to be talked about. Okay. Now, by the way, let me throw one, one other layer in here that I, I just think. Oh, so, so let me take a step back. No, I'll do this. <laughs> One other way. What about Book of Mormon witnesses? What do we have? Joseph, Oliver, David, Martin, and eight witnesses. Uh, what a shock that is. Okay, so so let me just say here, here here's what I believe about what you're watching happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where the Savior is, there is a temple. 
Where the Savior is, He can create a temple moment wherever He goes. Again, go back to the, the, uh, with the Nephites. There is the moment when the Savior is going to pray and do the intercessory prayer for these Nephites and He's in the Holy of Holies. And what does He surround Himself with? Think about it. Who did He pull right next to Him as He created this temple in that midst? The children. The children. He surrounded Himself with children. And then who's on the outside of that? Go back and read the account. Angels. And then the parents. Wherever the Savior goes, He can create a temple. And I think He created a temple in the Garden of Gethsemane for that, for that moment in time. Does that make sense? That these most sacred ordinances could be taken care of. And those that were doubting the most, He put on the outside... The three witnesses that would be able to witness. And even for them this was overwhelming. To, to the point where they, they were sorrowing. We're going to be finishing with that. And then he's in the middle. Handling the, this most important moment in time. Okay. Alright. Um, start building the temple and they always get turned away by the Jewish army you know it's like okay and the, the press is usually going to follow them on their way up there but they've already yeah they they produced all that so okay so now we're going to get to the crux of this uh, Savior uh, goes a little further he's established the temple he falls on his face and prays oh my father <laughs> If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. This moment of total submission in the in the in the overwhelm of what's coming and what he's feeling. 
I love Neil Maxwell's words. In this extremity, did he, perchance, hope for a rescuing ram in the thicket? If there's some other way that my mortal mind doesn't completely understand, that it still needs to be done, but if there's any other way to not feel what I'm feeling, any other possibility, I do not know. His suffering as it were, and then, and I love this phrase, enormity multiplied by infinity. Enormity multiplied by infinity. And I would add one more. And personally. <coughs> Evoke his later soul cry on the cross. And it was a cry of forsakenness. You can turn the air conditioning off before people turn it off. <laughs> Ice cubes. Now, how this works From the infinite atonement, I was I was always uh, amazed by by these words. As uh, Elder Callister looked at this, what happened in Gethsemane? That he had that he also had godly powers did not make his suffering any less excruciating, any less poignant, or any less real. To the contrary. It is for this very reason that his suffering was more, not less, than his mortal counterparts could experience. He took upon him infinite suffering, but chose to defend only with mortal faculties. But with one exception, his Godhead was summoned to hold off unconsciousness and death that would otherwise overpower a mere mortal when it reached his threshold of pain. If any of us had tried to carry the weight of the atonement, what happens? We pass out quickly. We're overwhelmed. For the Savior, however, there would be no such relief. His divinity would be called upon not to immunize him from pain, but to enlarge the receptacle that would hold it. His Godhead made this infinitely more painful because there was no passing out. There was no fainting from pain. He had a larger ability to feel it and a godlike ability to keep his senses about him while he experienced it. That's beyond our comprehension. No wonder he was wondering, is there any possible way this cup can pass from me? Because my cup is so big. He simply brought a larger cup to hold the bitter drink.
That's why when in our common parlance, when we talk about the atonement quickly and in regular conversation, and what, how else are we going to do it but that, but there is always a, <clears throat> a bit of a cheapening because of the absolute power of what it is that we're describing in that, in that very moment. What's that? Oh, this is in the Infinite Atonement, his book, page 119. Now, in trying to understand this, look at, in the middle of all this pain and struggle, now he's going to do something that on one side appears to be kind of very, very human, but being overcome by all of this, he's going, to almost, he's going to interrupt the flow of what he's feeling to get up and walk the few feet over to where Peter, James, and John are, are at. He's going to come out of the Holy of Holies for a second, out to the holy place, and hear these, hear these three. And he's going to say, uh, And he cometh unto his disciples, and he findeth them asleep, and he saith unto... Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Now, I love Luke, Luke's version of this. When he arose from prayer and was come to his, to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Does that change the way you look at this? How would we say that in common language? They cried themselves to sleep. That's why, again, if, you're try, if we try and put too much weakness into these very powerful people who have been taught and strengthened and filled with the power of God, be careful. They cried themselves to sleep. They... We're sleeping for sorrow. Uh, now, there is, there is a fascinating verse that I found this week. Um, and as I, I started reading it, I thought, oh, the Savior predicted this moment. There was a, there was a prophecy uh, that the Savior was giving and nobody really saw exactly what He was saying. And look at it. So, and it's actually in Mark 13. 32. Because he's going to say to Peter, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is still weak. Let's turn over to Mark 13. And we've read this, but I don't know if we've read this as part of the experience in Gethsemane. Uh, for Peter in this moment and also brothers and sisters for us this is our reaction to all of this okay I need you to really personalize this otherwise this becomes a nice story unless we personalize it then it becomes real okay 31 heaven and earth shall pass away my word shall not pass away 32 but of that day and that hour knoweth no man not the angels which are in heaven Neither the Son, but the Father. Now, Peter. 
I would say this to each one of us. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye not know when the time is. And then listen to this prophecy. Think Gethsemane. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and he commanded the porter to watch. Who's the porter? Peter. He commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, Peter, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, or at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing at 3 a.m. Think cock crowing. Or in the morning, lest he, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And you go, wow, that's a lot to put on Peter. But then look at the next line. What I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. So, I think our, as we, as we look at the atonement and the power of that, I think we have to be, I think we've got to balance. We have to ask ourselves a question. I think, I think we are going to sorrow in this world. Remember that the disciples were sleeping for sorrow while this, powerful moment was occurring but now he's given Peter two options and on one side Peter could be sleeping or he could be watching now that I think that's our challenge there's my question to you sleep we must or sorrow we must in this life we will grieve we will have pain we will hurt grieve and sorrow we must but the question is whether we will watch or whether we will sleep. What is the difference between watching and sleeping? You say, well, you're snoring here. You're... How would you know whether you're watching or sleeping? What does it look like to watch? If we're watching, then what? How would you know? Oh, ca- ooh, I like that. The difference between being careful and casual. So being watchful, being watchful is being careful. careful. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes when we're having a hard time, we want to numb ourselves, we want to go to sleep and forget it. Yes. But in the midst of sorrow, we can look for the blessings of God and for the help of God that we have to look for. We have to be looking, don't we? And isn't looking part of watching? That's why I, I think it's fascinating. Let's go back to what we just said about how do you know, how do the Jews keep time? Well, from dusk to three to 9 a.m. is the first what? What are they watching? <coughs> what are people watching for? Why is it called a watch? Yeah. Aren't they watching for the dawn? They're watching for danger? They're keeping their eyes open and, and to make sure so that some people can get some rest 
We're going to build a tower, and who, what are we going to, who are we going to put up in the tower? The watchman. And it's their job to watch for danger. And what happens if the watchman who is supposed to be watching is sleeping? Yeah, we got a problem because, because then danger can creep in unawares and, and all of the vineyard can fall. Yes. That's what I'm saying. I think we have to look very carefully. What does it mean if we're going to actually be watching? And, and, and when, when will we know when we're doing either one? Yeah? Yes. I like that idea of the general conference thing. Think about that. That becomes very literal, doesn't it? Here comes general conference in a couple of weeks. Am I watching or am I sleeping? <laughs> and, and what does watching general conference mean? Because I can be watching and still sleeping spiritually. <laughs> what would that mean to be watching, watching, and not just watching, sleeping? Yeah. Well, President Ithuar, one of his talks from last time is titled, Are You Sleeping Through the Restoration? Yes, because I think we can sleep through this. And I think that's why I say this becomes so poignant for these women, because the job of a watcher, according to what we just described, the job of a watcher is to ultimately have a responsibility to do what? Witness. We can bear witness to what we saw, bear witness to what we observed. Bear witness to the reality of what happened. That's what watchers do. Yeah. I was thinking earlier when you were talking about going to a meeting and you're tired. And, and, you know, oftentimes those are the things that we go to because someone will notice if we're not at that meeting. That it's what we do within the walls of our own home. And we're by ourselves. Easier to sleep at home, isn't it? Nobody knows. And we're not watching. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so let, let me just finish with this, and, and, and then we're going to be done. I, one of the most powerful elements of this, of the entire atonement uh, set of scriptures, is that I think we have to picture each one of us as if we are Peter, James, and John. Picture yourself as if you are one of those witnesses. And we need to be watching, not sleeping. 
Why? Because ultimately there will come a time, whether it's with our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors, whoever else we come in contact with, we need to be able to stand as a witness and say, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of His glory. Not with my physical eyes, but with my spiritual eyes. I have felt it. I've been in places where I felt the reality of of the Savior's sacrifice, and I will gladly bear witness of that. And I think that needs to radiate from us, even to a world that's only going to hear just a little bit of. Even to us where we say, I don't really understand the atonement. No, you really don't. You don't get it. I don't get it. I understand a sliver of the enormity of that. But in those moments, I can bear witness to what I know. Brothers and sisters, I I plead with us that we can be able to be witnesses of this glory. And that we can be watching steadfastly and not sleeping, which would be an easy thing to do. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.